Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly web zine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Leveled, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for February 13th, 2022, the sixth Sunday after the Epiphany. Blessed are you who are poor, hungry, sad, and expendable. Woe to you who are rich, full, happy, and popular. This week's gospel in a nutshell. Boom. In Luke's version of the Beatitude story, Jesus has just spent the night alone on a mountainside, praying before he chooses his twelve apostles. As morning dawns, he and the newly called twelve descend from the mountain to find a crowd waiting. People have come from everywhere to seek help, and Jesus, in his element, with power literally pouring off of his garments, heals them all. Then, standing on a level place with the crowd, he tells his would-be followers what life in God's upside-down kingdom looks like. Those who are destitute, unfed, grieving, and marginalized should leap for joy, because they have God's ear and God's blessing. But those who are wealthy, full-bellied, carefree, and well-liked should watch out, because their condition is far more precarious than they realize. The material blessings they cherish most, the very possessions and attributes they consider signs of God's favor, are in fact liabilities in the realm of God. What should we do with this stinging lectionary? What should we, specifically those of us who are comfortable rather than destitute, do? What I'm tempted to do is edit Jesus' words until I can tolerate them, as in, He didn't really mean poor, did he? Homeless, poor, slum, poor, or hungry, as in starving? Surely he didn't mean that God wants us to spend our days weeping, lost in sorrow and misery, or that we should court the world's dislike and defamation in order to earn God's blessing. Obviously, Jesus was exaggerating, wasn't he? Speaking figuratively? There must be some way I can wiggle out of the woes column and sneak into the blessed column instead, right? Right? Unlike Matthew, who softens the Beatitudes with phrases like poor in spirit instead of poor and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness instead of plain old hungry, Luke keeps Jesus' sermon on the plain, raw, terse, and close to the bone. There's no way around it. As far as Luke's Jesus is concerned, God's preferential option for the poor is clear. God's blessing rests on those who have absolutely nothing to fall back on but God. No credit line, no nest egg, no fan base, no immunity. If we want to know where God's heart is, we must look to the world's most reviled, wretched, shamed, and desperate people. They are the fortunate ones. So again, what should we do with this gospel? Wallow in guilt? Romanticize poverty? Avoid happiness? I don't think so. The very fact that Jesus prefaces his hard teaching by alleviating suffering in every way possible suggests that he doesn't valorize misery for its own sake. Pain in and of itself is neither holy nor redemptive in the Christian story, and in fact, Jesus' ministry is all about healing, abundance, liberation, and joy. Moreover, her sermon on the plain is not prescriptive. Nowhere in his litany of blessings and woes does Jesus tell his listeners how to behave. As Barbara Brown Taylor puts it, the sermon is not advice at all. It is not even judgment. It is simply the truth about the way things work. Notice also that Jesus doesn't offer the four blessings to one audience and the four woes to another. His sermon is not a sorting exercise between the good folks and the bad folks. He addresses every blessing and every woe to every person, as if to say, all of us embody both. 
we move from blessing to woe over and over again in our lives on earth. We invite blessing every time we hunger for God and we invite woe every time we retreat into smug self-satisfaction. When I am full of anything but God, God empties me for the sake of my own salvation. When I am bereft, vulnerable, and empty, God blesses me with the fullness of God's favor and grace. We are, all of us, on one level, blessed and woeful, saint and sinner. We occupy the plane together. Maybe then our calling in this gospel is to accept the tensions and complexities of this both and. Maybe our task is to resist our own defensiveness, our own fear of leaning into God's blessings or humbling ourselves beneath God's woes. So I'll ask the question one more time. What am I, cozy and comfortable as I am in my healthy, happy, middle-class life, to do with Luke's version of the Beatitudes? How shall I reflect on it, receive it, sit with it? I might begin by admitting that Jesus is right. That is to say, I might come clean about the fact that most of the time, I am not desperate for God. I am not keenly aware of God's active daily intervention in my life. I am not on my knees with need, ache, sorrow, longing, gratitude, or love. After all, why should I be? I have plenty to eat. I live in a comfortable home. My family is safe. I'm not in dire need of anything. In short, there isn't much in my circumstances that leads me to a sense of urgency about ultimate things. I can go for days without talking to God. I can go for days without thinking about God. It's easy for all things deep and divine to become afterthoughts in my life because God doesn't have to be on my 24-7 radar. This isn't because I'm callous. It's because, as Jesus puts it so wisely in his sermon, I am already full. I have already received my consolation. I have easy access to laughter, so I don't wonder what lessons my honest tears might yield. I am primed by my cozy life to live in the shallows, unaware of the treasures that lie waiting in the depths. Most of the time, it just plain doesn't occur to me that I would be lost, utterly and wholly lost physically and spiritually, without the grace that sustains me. I think what Jesus is saying in this gospel is that I have something to learn about discipleship that my life circumstances alone cannot teach me, something to grasp about the beauty, glory, and freedom of the Christian life that I will never grasp until God becomes my everything, my all, my go-to, my starting place, and my ending place, something to humbly admit about the limitations of my privilege, something to recognize about the radical counterintuitiveness of God's priorities and promises something to notice about the obfuscating power of plenty to blind me to my own emptiness, something to gain from the humility that says, those people I think I'm superior to, they have everything to teach me. Maybe it's time to shut up and pay attention. Is it comfortable to sit in the woes column? No. Might a willingness to do it anyway save my life? Yes. In a beautiful reflection on Jesus' upside-down kingdom, Frederick Beekner writes this, The world says, mind your own business, and Jesus says, there is no such thing as your own business. The world says, follow the wisest course and be a success, and Jesus says, follow me and be crucified. The world says, drive carefully, the life you save may be your own, and Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The world says law and order, and Jesus says love. The world says get, and Jesus says give. In terms of the world's sanity, Jesus is crazy as a coot, and anybody who thinks he can follow him without being a little crazy too is laboring less under a cross than under a delusion.
This is not prosperity theology. This is not blessing as health, wealth, and happiness. This is a teaching so costly most of us will do anything to domesticate it. Blessed are you who are poor, hungry, sad, and expendable. Why? Because you have everything to look forward to. Because the kingdom of God is yours. Because God is the God of those who have nothing but God. May the one who gives and takes away in order to save us give us the grace to sit with woe and learn the meaning of blessing. For books this week, Dan reviews, I have been buried under years of dust, a memoir of autism and hope by Valerie Gilpier and Emily Grodin. Hello, readers. For 25 years, I was trapped inside a body without a voice. Through the help of my communication partner, I have learned to type. I'm now able to really express my thoughts and feelings in a way I never thought possible. The years used to pass me by and I was merely an onlooker of my own life. Now I am the one making the decisions about my life and won't ever again be silent. I'm so very grateful every single day. Please, friends, do me a real favor and be open-minded when you meet someone on the autism spectrum. I can guarantee that there is more to them than you can see. Sincerely, Emily. Emily Grodin, born in 1991, was close to an official diagnosis of autism by her first birthday. By the age of two, her parents, Valerie Gilpier and Tom Grodin, were paying for 25 hours of private therapy every week for Emily. This mother-daughter memoir describes in excruciating detail the very lonely battle of a family with autism. The memoir does two things exceptionally well. First, it helps you to understand the struggle of the parents, who were crushed by the weight of what we carried. The social isolation, the strains on their marriage, feelings of helplessness, hopelessness, anger, defeat, humiliation, denial, magical thinking, and chronic anxiety. The endless search for answers and explanations, the revolving doors of schools to find the right spot, etc. Second, we learn what autism is like from Emily's perspective. Although most of the story is written by the mother, Valerie, there are generous portions of Emily's first-person narratives included throughout the book, including an entire appendix of her writings. Further, Valerie's descriptions of Emily's life with autism are painfully realistic. A miracle is the word that one doctor used to describe what happened to Emily. As Emily herself recounts above at the age of 25, out of the blue and right after a nadir of profound failures, she learned to type on an iPad, which in turn would read aloud what she had written. The title of the memoir were some of her very first words. She would go on to write all sorts of things, answers to questions, conversations, poems, essays, letters. It's clear that during those 25 long years of silence, Emily had a rich interior emotional and intellectual life. There are no false promises here, nor should there be. Emily still does not express herself verbally in fully normal ways. She types on the iPad much more readily with her helpers than with her parents. Remarkable progress, thanks to a breakthrough, is not a perfect fix. The family had significant financial resources that most families don't have. In some ways, as Gil Pierce says, we are still in the dark ages when it comes to autism. It is a mysterious and complicated disability. Finally, as Gil Pierce is careful to note, every family experience is different. If you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. Each individual is a data set of one. Nonetheless, this memoir is a rich mixture of pain, hope, inspiration, and tenacity. It evokes compassion and will be a provocative contribution to the literature on autism. Important note, 
Valerie Gilpier is a believer in what is known as facilitated communication, or supported typing, which argues that autism is a physical problem and not a neurological disability. In this view, the autistic person has a normal mind and a broken body that needs help to communicate. <clears throat> Gilpier admits that FC is scientifically controversial and widely criticized. There was a huge literature on this debate, which many scientists argue is conclusive. I would point interested readers to the wiki article, Facilitated Communication, the first sentence of which reads that FC is, quote, a scientifically discredited technique that attempts to aid communication by people with autism or other communication disabilities who are nonverbal, close quote. The article includes a list of 22 organizations that oppose FC including the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and the American Academy of Pediatrics. For films this week, Dan reviews Chuck Berry. It would be hard to exaggerate the influence of Chuck Berry on the history of American music. His breakout hit, Maybelline, in 1955, jump-started rock and roll music, was a crossover song among both black and white listeners and made him an overnight star. Barry was the first inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when it opened in 1986. He is routinely listed as one of the greatest guitarists of all times on lists like those in Rolling Stone magazine. And he was so much more. Poet, performer, entertainer, entrepreneur, sound pioneer, stage presence, and all-around very complicated and controversial artist. This one-hour documentary aired in July of 2021 as part of PBS's biographical series called In Their Own Words. The many narrators include his wife of 68 years, Thimeta, his children, his friend, Keith Richards, and his biographer, Bruce Pegg. For more on Barry, see the concert documentary in honor of his 60th birthday called Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, 1987, which is available on Amazon Prime Streaming. Dan watched this film on the PBS website. And lastly, for poetry on the sixth Sunday after the Epiphany, a Child's Thought of God by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. They say that God lives very high, but if you look above the pines, you cannot see our God. And why? And if you dig down in the mines, you never see him in the gold, though from him all that's glory shines. God is so good, he wears a fold of heaven and earth across his face like secrets kept for love untold. But still I feel that his embrace lies down by thrills through all things made, through sight and sound of every place, as if my tender mother laid on my shut lids her kisses pressure, half waking me at night and said, Who kissed you through the dark, dear guesser? Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for February 13th, 2022. I'm Debbie Thomas.